Good morning, afternoon, or night, whenever or wherever you happen to be. You're listening to Music in Theory, where we take deep dives into musical topics for listeners both nerdy and normal. I'm your host, Brent Lawrence, and today we're talking about the sound of silence. In August 1952, composer John Cage premiered a piece which gave the simple instructions tacit for any and all instruments. This piece was of course the famous 433, a work of complete silence. A work that has sparked endless debate about whether the piece itself is quote-unquote music and conversation about what music actually is. 433 is a piece of aleatoric music or chance music. And just like it sounds, a piece of this type leaves something up to chance. This can be contrasted with the concept of indeterminacy, which allows for the performer of a piece to make compositional choices pertaining to their particular rendition. I guess 433 could be indeterminate too if you consider that one guy coughing way too loudly in the silence of a concert hall a participating performer. But putting musical genre and jargon aside, How can silence be music? Are the extraneous sounds that happen during the musical silence part of the piece? If a sound happens to coincide with a musical performance, is that sound now part of the music? To answer these questions, we'll need to dive in into a bit of musical philosophy and look at what creates a work of music, what does music mean, and how it should be interpreted. Before talking about anything else, I feel that it's important for us to construct music, whatever that is, from the ground up. I'm not sure there's any solid answers here, but we need to take some time in considering how music fits into the rest of our human experience. So first, we must acknowledge that we are creatures bearing consciousness. A consciousness that, according to Immanuel Kant at least, is the unity of whatever we perceive and what we already know. Music, then, must follow as something that we perceive through the lens of our consciousness. Let's break this down a little further. To Kant, and many other philosophers, there are two types of knowledge. There are the things that we know, almost innately, purely through reason. Things like 2 plus 2 equals 4, or all single people are unmarried. But there are also things that we can only know by experiencing the world, like that door is red, or say scientific knowledge. Kant then comes to the conclusion that our consciousness is a combination of these types of knowledge. In philosophy, this is called the synthetic unity of apperception. For me, this brings up the question of whether music is a thing in itself. Does music exist on its own, and further still, does it need a human observer to perceive it and interpret it through their own consciousness? And I think Kant would say that it's only constructed in our minds. On the other hand, Schopenhauer, who came after Kant, would contest this point. 
To him, everything in existence contains a sort of hidden essence or substructure, which he calls the will, with a capital W. This shouldn't be confused with the Kantian concept of self-conception, like we just talked about, where we are bound by the horizons of our consciousness. Rather, Schopenhauer holds that we can attempt to gain access to the will, this essence of knowledge, through introspection. Music, to Schopenhauer, is the only thing that allows us to access that hidden essence. It is not merely a shadow or representation of it, it is a depiction of the will itself. So music, it seems, is something that must be created that we perceive through our own consciousness. What it is that we perceive exactly, or even if music exists independent of our perception, is up for debate. In this next rabbit hole, let's consider what separates music from noise. In the very beginning of his book, Themes in the Philosophy of Music, Stephen Davies proposes a piece of music written for an instrument above the human hearing range, with a tempo of one beat every five years. This piece of music would be imperceivable to most humans, since for one, we couldn't hear the notes, and two, the music would move too slowly to be recognized as music. Nonetheless, the piece could still be performed because the happenings that occur during its performance are being framed as a piece of art. The same can be said for Cages 433, that the sounds that occur during the piece, even if they're random and extraneous, are being framed and elevated to the status of art, which, in Davies' words, invests them with a significance they would not otherwise possess. And by granting these sounds significance in this way, we are adopting them into the tradition we know as music. So it seems that the framing of sounds goes a long way in distinguishing between artistry and chaos. This makes me wonder, though, what is this frame? What is it that holds a piece of music together? This is certainly a topic of aesthetics and up for much debate. But in the classical tradition, which John Cage most certainly came out of and is remembered by, there is a huge emphasis on dialectic, a sense that music is framed by and moves forward in some sort of logical combination and progression. Dialectics is a philosophical tradition that dates back to Plato, but was also and somewhat more recently associated with Hegel. And it's basically the idea that A plus B results in C, then C plus D results in E. In intellectual terms, it is described as thesis plus antithesis, or antithesis, equals synthesis. Then the synthesis becomes a thesis, and so on. The idea is applied to everything from rhythm and meter, to melodic structures, to the form of whole pieces. We can illustrate this really well using rhythmic pulses. Let's say we have two of them one that's accented and the other that's not accented. We'll say that this, our two pulses, is our thesis. If we proceed to a third pulse and it sounds accented, as expected, the thesis continues. But if we add a third pulse that breaks the two pulse pattern, that would be an antithesis. A disruption that needs to be resolved. The combination of these two patterns, which now contains three pulses, 
is a synthesis. So we started with groupings of two, but we have now synthesized that into groupings of three using different accents. This procedure can be done again and again to create more and more complex patterns. The value in this procedure is that it breaks down complex structures into easily digestible fragments of knowledge. And it is clear how certain themes, chords, rhythms, and such develop throughout a work. Viewing musical development in this way allows us to track how a work is built from very simple, essential materials into a complex whole. We've spent a lot of words talking about what music is and how it's constructed, but I suppose it's important to discuss what music means. And I have to say that for me, music in and of itself, independent of words or other programmatic associations, doesn't really mean anything. How can it? I, I guess if you pressed me, I'd admit that we can't escape the relationships we make to music that we are, in fact, bound by our own consciousness, and that it colors how we perceive and interpret music. But at a fundamental level, I'm not really sure music can mean anything. According to philosopher Andrew Bowie, meaning in music is actually reliant on its relation to other things. And in reality, the more meaning we attempt to instill into music through verbal language, the more abstract musical meaning becomes for meaning in language is also relational. Therefore, using words to answer a question like, what does music mean, is presupposing that our words sufficiently describe any meaning that there is. I think Bowie puts it very nicely, this disconnect or perhaps conflict between music, language, and meaning. In his book, Philosophical Variations, he says, it is more productive to see how understandings of language and of music relate to each other in modernity than to think in terms of a definite philosophical theory. And I think that is correct. To me, the more interesting query is what relationship musical meaning and linguistic meaning have between each other, not if music is some sort of universal language. So let's finally bring this back to John Cage although I'm not sure we're any closer to having a definitive answer for the artistic status of 433. Nonetheless, Davies, who I referenced earlier, provides three explanations that I think are worth mentioning. One, the sounds in 433 can be considered as musical themselves or in relation to music. The sounds produced happen as if they were intentionally created to be music. However, Cage completely rejects this notion. He wants to appreciate the sounds for what they are. Therefore, Cage would prefer something like this, number two. We could also appreciate these sounds as their individual auditory events, without regard to music. Which brings us to number three, and what Cage prefers to think. That 433 is a new type of music something that transcends and deconstructs the traditional distinctions of what music is. So really, what I think Cage's aim was, was not to create music in the terms of the tradition, 
but to break down those constructs and invite us to consider the possibility that all sounds could be thought of as musical. And in that sense, I think he was certainly successful. Or at the very least, it sparked a very interesting conversation. Well, that's the show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you like what you heard, please visit me on the web at patreon.com slash musicintheory. Or go to one of my social media profiles, and they'll be listed in the show notes below. This podcast is written, recorded, and produced by me, Brent Lawrence, in my apartment's spare bedroom, which is currently located in Eugene, Oregon. I hope you'll tune in next time, but until then, please keep listening. This has been Music in Theory. Thank you.